Last time we spoke about the invasion of Eniwetok and the end of Operation Hago, the Burma Front. While Operation Hailstone was going on, the invasion of Eniwetok was greatly sped up as Americans were simply too fast at conquering the Marshall Islands. Codenamed Operation Catchpole, Eniwetok was hit with the same kind of overwhelming force applied to Kwajalein and the other islands. Aerial, naval, and land-based artillery smashed the defenders into submission before forces were landed. The Japanese launched daring nighttime infiltration attacks, but they were hopeless to stop the American seizure of the island. Within the Burma Front, the Japanese invaders were shocked at the performance of the newly improved Indian Army. Operation Hago was an utter disaster, and worse, it had weakened the Japanese to the point now the Allies were going on the attack. This episode is The Invasion of the Admiralty Islands. Welcome back to the Pacific War Podcast week by week, and I'm your dutiful host, Craig Watson. But before we begin, I just want to remind you all that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube. Perhaps you want to learn a bit more about World War II? Kings and Generals has an assortment of episodes on World War II and so much more, so go give them a look over at YouTube. So please, subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And hey, don't forget about our sister podcast over at the Age of Conquest, the Fall and Rise of China podcast, written and narrated by me. And if after all that you are still hungry for some more history, why don't you check out my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel over at YouTube. Over there I've just released part 3 in my Kanji Ishiwata series, The China War. That series used to be an exclusive over on my Patreon account, which can be found at www.patreon.com slash the Pacific War Channel. And over there you can find more than 14 ongoing Patreon-exclusive podcasts. You can join up for as little as $2 and you receive all the podcasts you can ever desire. The war for the South Pacific is reaching its climax. The Allies are securing western New Britain, the Solomons, and the Juan Peninsula. Quite frankly, the Japanese are simply being overwhelmed. The Japanese air forces have been utterly annihilated. The warships are being drained of fuel. They're being worn down by the war. And they're seemingly no longer ready for the decisive naval battle once envisioned by the late Isoruku Yamamoto. The men are battle-weary. Food is becoming scarce. Malnourishment is spreading. All of those strung out in the furthest islands are basically being left to die. To end the misery for those in the South Pacific, the capture of the Admiralty Islands was one of the last steps in Operation Cartwheel, and it would seal off the Bismarck-Solomon area from supply and reinforcement, denying their use to the Japanese for effective air and naval operations. And this would leave garrisons totaling over 100,000 troops in isolated impotence. In the South Pacific, the Admiralty Islands, that of Manos and Los Negros, stood at the northeastern exit of the Bismarck Sea. They commanded the important strategic point some 600 miles from Rabaul, 820 miles from Truk, and about 1,370 miles from Mindanao Island. The Joint Chiefs believed Seedler Harbor had the potential to become a major naval anchorage for the Pacific Fleet and perhaps the springboard for the invasion of the Philippines. Back on April the 7th of 1942, a Japanese destroyer and a merchant ship had landed invading forces at Florangal, driving off the hundred or so Europeans who had been living there. 
At that time, the only airstrip was at Lorengau, the administrative center for the group of islands. Apparently, the Admiralties were not considered significant in the offensive phase of the Japanese conquest of the South Pacific area. For it was not until February of 1943 that the construction forces started to build a 5,000-foot airstrip at Momet Plantation on Los Negros, and to put a 3,000-foot Lorengal airfield into operational use. After October of 1943, the Momolt Field and the smaller Lorengal Strip served as fairing stops on their replacement routes to Wewak, Hollandia, and Rabaul, until Allied air attacks destroyed the effectiveness of the Admiralty's base. Seedler Harbor was also being used for surface craft and possibly for some seaplanes. In late 1943, General MacArthur had assigned General Kruger's Alamo Force at the time, based in Finchhafen, to plan the seizure of Seedler Harbor area with the aim of establishing an aerodrome and light naval facilities for the support of subsequent operations along the northern coast of New Guinea. On February the 13th, however, MacArthur ordered Kruger to seize all of the Admiralty Islands and to build air bases at Lorangal and Mamut. This was to be called Operation Brewer, beginning on April the 1st. However, one of Lieutenant General Kenny's spotter planes noticed there was no sign of life on the Admiralty Islands, and this prompted MacArthur to move up the timetable to the end of February. It would be quite a mistake. MacArthur's chief of intelligence, Colonel Willoughby, was convinced Kenny's intelligence was incorrect and that the information from ultra-intercepts seemed to support his claims. It seemed Kenny had been fooled. The Japanese appeared to be absent on the islands because Colonel Yoshio Izaki had ordered his men not to move during the day so as to conceal their work constructing two new airstrips and to conserve anti-aircraft ammunition. In spite of Kenny's arguments that the Japanese looked vulnerable, MacArthur's staff officers were not at all that happy at the idea of taking such a high-level risk assaulting them. Even Kenny himself would note, We had already outrun the capabilities of our supply system. Ignoring the limitations, MacArthur was determined to take the islands but would later reminisce. I felt that the situation presented an ideal opportunity for a coup de main, which, if successful, could advance the Allied timetable in the Pacific by several months and save thousands of Allied lives. This, of course, is MacArthur talking about the capture of the Admiralty Islands that would advance his timetable to retake the Philippines, so for him it was a no-brainer. There was also an ongoing race. MacArthur was obviously taking notice of Admiral Nimitz's thrust into the Central Pacific, and what a thrust it was. The Gilberts and Marshalls were falling in extremely surprising speed. MacArthur, fully aware of the risks of forwarding Operation Brewer, nevertheless did so, and he would cover his tracks by describing the invasion as a, quote, reconnaissance in force. The misgivings of this decision would be apparent when a covert reconnaissance mission led by Lieutenant J.R. McGowan and five other men of the 158th Infantry reported on February the 27th that the island was, quote, lousy with Japs. But by that point, it was too late to pull back. For the operation, Kruger would assign Major General Ina Swift's 1st Cavalry Division, which was training intensively in the Oro Bay area. Although the 1st Cavalry Division was dismounted for operations in the Pacific, it retained its organization as a cavalry unit, with two brigades each made up of two reinforced regiments. 
In addition to supporting units, each regiment comprised two squadrons of three rifle troops and heavy weapons troop. Air offensives against Rabaul and Wewak continued throughout February, seeing an enormous reduction in the Japanese ability for air action. On the 22nd and the 23rd, Captain Burke's destroyer squadron number 23, consisting of destroyers Charles Osborne, Stanley, Converse, Spence, and Dyson, made a daring sweep in the Admiralty Island area. They managed to sink the 3,800-ton Japanese tug Nogata, just due east of Lorengau. Three of his destroyers then sailed south of New Hanover, where they sank a IGN mine lair and a cargo ship before turning around to the coast of New Ireland. They encountered no shipping there, so they fired 1,505-inch shells into the Duke of York Island in order to damage the airfield under construction. Meanwhile, the other two destroyers sailed north of New Hanover and bombarded the enemy base at Kaving. At this point, MacArthur realized the Japanese could not mount any significant air naval support to defend the Admiralties. He also believed Los Negros Islands were lightly held, and that there was a coup de main opportunity. You know, God, as somebody who speaks French as a second language, I gotta say, it is kind of weird how we Anglophones use random French phrases for things. Anyways, MacArthur decided to change his plan somewhat. In place of the scheduled assault set for April the 1st, he now was tossing the reconnaissance in force, I mentioned earlier, against the Mamont airstrip on Hayane Harbor, and that it should be carried out no later than February the 29th. The force performing this was to be known as the Brewer Reconnaissance Force. They consisted of three rifle troops, and a heavy weapons troop of the 2nd Squadron, 5th Cavalry Regiment, 800 men with their complement of light and heavy machine guns, rocket launchers, and motors. With them was also a platoon from Battery B of the 99th Field Artillery Battalion, carrying two 75mm pack howitzers, four 50 caliber machine guns, and small arms. The 673rd Anti-Aircraft Machine Gun Battery, a unit of just 80 men, was equipped with 12 50 caliber machine guns as well as some individual weapons. Air Naval Liaison Officers and Shorefire Control Parties were scheduled to land with the attacking force as well. The headquarters troop, the 1st Cavalry Brigade, would furnish a reconnaissance and a communications platoon. Arrangements had also been made for a detachment from the Australian New Guinea Administrative Unit, usually called Angau, and this group was to assist chiefly in gathering intelligence, patrolling, recruiting, and dealing with the native population as their village was going to be liberated. If these men found Mamut to be adequately defended, they would establish a perimeter and await reinforcements. Thus, the reconnaissance turns into an invasion. With just five days to plan, General Kenny's 5th Air Force was given the task of bombing the objective area and that of Northern Ireland. Meanwhile, Admiral Barbie's destroyers were going to perform a heavy bombardment to cover the approach and landings. A patrol from the Alamo Scouts landed on the southeastern coast of Los Negros from a Catalina flying boat on the night of February the 27th. They performed a reconnaissance, and they quickly discovered Colonel Yoshio Ezeki's forces were present. Yoshio's HQ was at Papitale, the bulk of his troops at Lorangal, with the garrison units on Rambuto, Peli, Pak, Pitiyili Islands, and at the inland village of Kualiap. One battalion was also at Papitale covering HQ. There was also the 2nd Battalion 1st Independent Mixed Regiment at Salami, and the 1st Battalion 229th Regiment at Hayane Harbor, with its main elements south of Mamut. It was obvious the enemy was still present in quite some force. 
The scouts discovered a large bivouac area on the southeast part of Los Negros, and they reported that the region between the Mamut airstrip and the south coast was, as I mentioned earlier, lousy with Japs. This further allowed Admiral Barbie to make more specific bombardment plans. Three fire support areas had been established for the attack group, consisting of nine destroyers and three destroyer transports, which were carrying the reconnaissance force. These areas covered the entire seaward side of Los Negros from the south coast to the northern end of Salami Plantation. In the final plans, the attack group would bring the weight of its firepower against targets around Hyani Harbor and to the north. Additional fire to cover the southern part of the island would be furnished by another task group of two cruisers and four destroyers, which would meet the convoy at Cape Cretan. I'm not sure if I'm supposed to pronounce that in the French way, it would be Cretan, but probably Cretan. It was decided to split this later group, giving one cruiser and two destroyers responsibility for the Japanese bivouac area, southwest of the Mamut Strip, which the Alamo scouts had located. The other cruiser and two destroyers would fire on targets in the Lorangau-Siedler Harbor region. In the 15-minute bombardment scheduled from H-35 to H-20, 5-inch naval guns were to each expend approximately 350 rounds. Under the Air Force plan, two groups of heavy bombers would attack ground targets on Los Negros from H-28 to H-20. Two minutes later, four groups of medium bombers were to bomb and strafe the landing area until the first wave was ashore. Following H-hour, a squadron of medium bombers and six smoke planes would be on air alert for further missions. And all of this talk of H-hours really does signify how far the Allies have come in amphibious assaults. Everything is planned meticulously. Now, the Japanese did not anticipate a landing would be made at Momot. Thus, they only had a few elements of the 1st Battalion, 229th Regiment there, while the bulk of their forces were concentrated at the beaches of Seedler Harbor and on the other side of the island. Despite the Alamo scouts' best efforts, there was quite a lot of unknown variables. In light of that, the landings would be done rather simplistically. Three waves of 12 LCPRs would carry the troops to White Beach, lying near of Jamandalai Point. From there, the reconnaissance force led by Brigadier General William Chase would advance and hold Mamut's airstrip. If this proved too difficult, the men would be loaded back up and they would return to Oro Bay. Now, in the event of a successful landing, the remainder of the 5th Cavalry Regiment would come over two days later, then the rest of the Cavalry Division, the main body of the Brewer Force, would follow the reconnaissance and support forces as soon as the shipping could be made available. On February the 27th, the 2nd Squadron 5th Cavalry, led by Lieutenant Colonel William Lobet, loaded up at Oro Bay, and the following morning they would depart aboard three APDs and nine destroyers under the command of Rear Admiral William Fetchteller. They would rendezvous with Admiral Kincaid's light cruisers at about 1.26 p.m., around Cape Cretan, with General MacArthur aboard. And finally, they would arrive at a point about 10 miles south of Los Negros at 6 a.m. on February the 29th. While the troops climbed aboard their LCPRs, Fitchteller's destroyers opened fire on their assigned targets. Unfortunately, when the LCPRs reached the line of departure, about 3,700 yards from the beaches, the defenders responded with heavy machine gun fire and battery fire. At age 28 minutes, enemy machine gun fire opened up on the boats, whom began maneuvering as radically as they could. Machine gun fire was also directed against the destroyers and the Phoenix group to the south. Heavier shore batteries opened up, flashes could be seen from guns near Southeast Point on the island, and what appeared to be 3-4 to four inch shells landed in the vicinity of Fluser and Mahan. 
In response to this, the Phoenix and Mahan fired upon the batteries, and nine B-25s strafed and bombed the area. Their participation was limited by heavy overcast and a low ceiling. Of the 40 B-24s scheduled to arrive during the naval bombardment, only three appeared before their appointed time to bomb the target area at H-47 minutes. The planned missions of the four groups of B-25s fared a little bit better. No communications had been established with the B-25s, nor could any of the planes be seen from the flagship. So the plan was called off for stopping the naval gunfire at H-20 minutes to permit low-level bombing and strafing. The naval bombardment was continued for another 15 minutes. The order to cease fire was given at H-5 minutes, and although no aircraft were visible, star shells were fired as an attack signal for any strafers that might be in the vicinity. The first wave of LCPRs reached the shore at 8.17 a.m., meeting only slight enemy resistance. Troop G, led by First Lieutenant Marvin Henshaw, rushed beyond the narrow beach at the edge of a coconut plantation, taking cover under fallen trees and kunai grass. Here they lay prone, forming a rough half-circle with a 50-yard radius. They saw scattered groups of enemy fleeing inland, some as far away as the other side of the airstrip. First Lieutenant Henshaw killed one with a very long-distance shot, and members of his platoon killed another. Not a single soldier of the first wave became a casualty. As the bombardment lifted, the defenders gradually came out of their dugouts and they began subjecting the returning boats to crossfire. As the second wave approached, the enemy fire became so heavy, the LCPRs were forced to turn back so the Mahan, Fluza, and Drayton could further bombard them. At 8.23 a.m., the second wave finally landed, moving swiftly past the troops of the first wave to a point 100 yards inland. 22 minutes later, the third wave landed, rapidly fanning south and establishing a line 300 yards inland by 9 a.m. Meeting slated opposition, the cavalrymen managed to secure the Mamot airstrip by 9.50 a.m., and they completely unloaded by 12.50. Four of the LCPRs had been left out of action during the landings, so the reconnaissance force could not be evacuated. From the positions held by the first waves, the troops then gradually moved forward to cover the whole dispersal area of the airdrome sending patrols beyond the aerodrome, which identified evidence of concerning recent Japanese activity. As patrols sent out beyond the aerodrome began to report back, the commanders could decide what their next move would be. One patrol had scouted a thousand yards west of Porlaka without any contact, another almost as far north as the skidway before meeting an enemy. There was plenty of evidence that the Japanese had recently been in the vicinity in some strength. One patrol that went about a mile south found the hastily vacated quarters of a high-ranking officer, as well as a bivouac area, and fired at the fleeing Japanese officers they found. Another found three big kitchens and a warehouse of food. Although the Japanese in the area had offered negligible resistance, captured documents revealed that 200 anti-aircraft personnel had been encamped nearby. Given this information, General Chase decided to pull back to a perimeter due east of the airstrip and he had his cavalrymen dig in for the night. During the afternoon, the reconnaissance force organized its defenses, which presented many difficulties. A good foxhole required backbreaking effort, because the soil was very heavy with coral. Since there were no barbed wire to put around the beachhead, men and weapons had to be spaced closely, and every man available used for the perimeter defense. The 40 field artillery officers and men were assigned sectors for close-in defense because their two-pack howitzers could not cover the critical space in front of the defensive line from such a shallow depth as the perimeter allowed. They took over these sectors after the howitzers had blasted away for a while at the Japanese known to be in the skidway area. 
For every weapon's support, the 1250 caliber machine guns of the anti-aircraft unit were moved into positions along the front line. Signalmen strung the perimeter with wire to make the necessary hookups for officers in the chain of command. They removed the radio sets for communication with the 6th Army headquarters from advanced positions to a more sheltered bomb crater. Outposts were stationed beyond the strip on the far edges of the dispersal area. Meanwhile, MacArthur came ashore during the afternoon and he decorated the first man to land, Lieutenant Henshaw, with a distinguished service cross. He decided to stay, ordering Chase to hold his position until the follow-up force arrived. MacArthur then returned to the Phoenix, which got underway shortly after 5.29 p.m. for Cape Sedest, leaving just two destroyers. Over on the Japanese side, Colonel Izaki Yoshio immediately ordered the 1st Battalion, 229th Regiment, to attack the beachhead during the night and to annihilate the enemy, or at least die trying. Suspicious that the Mamote landing was some kind of diversion, however, this would prevent him from sending the rest of his troops to assist. As such, Colonel Izaki issued the following orders to the infantry battalion defending the Hyane Harbor sector. Tonight, the battalion under Captain Baba will annihilate the enemy who have landed. This is not a delaying action. Be resolute to sacrifice your life for the Emperor and to commit suicide in case of capture. We must carry out our mission with the present strength and annihilate the enemy on the spot. I am highly indignant about the enemy's arrogant attitude. Remember to kill or capture all ranking enemy officers for our intelligence purposes. As ordered, 200 men with three motors and three platoons of the 229th Infantry crept up to the Americans during the night. Yet by the time they reached the American line, their movement was no longer coordinated, and they could only achieve some minor infiltrations. There were groups of 7 to 15 Japanese trying to edge in, flinging grenades and weapons at anything that they could. The only way the Japanese could be seen was by the light of grenade explosions, or when the attackers got close enough so that the cavalrymen, crouched in a foxhole, could see them silhouetted against the sky. Many of the Japanese were cut down by machine gun and rifle fire, but some got through and succeeded in cutting all the telephone lines. Although infiltrations occurred on all edges of the perimeter, the attack was the heaviest near the shore on the southern side. Here, some Japanese reached the shore in the rear of the main defensive line by swimming in from the sea with life preservers on. The vegetation bordering the beach provided protection for those infiltrators. One group found an opening in the left flank of Troop E, holding the south sector, next to the field artillery unit that held along the shore. The enemy penetrated Troop E's defensive line, entirely isolating the 3rd platoon. Without communication with its troop, the unit had to fight it out alone against very heavy attacks. Come daylight, the majority of the Japanese survivors had disappeared back into the jungle, leaving 66 dead against 7 dead Americans and 15 wounded. However, there were those who had infiltrated successfully and reoccupied some of their former pillboxes and fortifications in the perimeter, and they would have to be cleared out by some tired cavalrymen. During the afternoon, patrols were sent west and north to check how much strength the enemy had, and the perimeter was further contracted and tightened. 5 p.m., two companies of the 229th Regiment made another coordinated effort against the perimeter, yet its intensity was lowered by the death of the battalion commander. Overall, the afternoon was quite free from enemy activity, except for a patrol which was discovered inside the perimeter at about 4 p.m. The patrol's mission was evidently to kill or capture the American commanding officer. It was led by Captain Baba, the commander of the battalion, who had made the major attack on the preceding night. Although operating in broad daylight, the patrol came close to succeeding. 
The Americans were confident that the morning's mop-up had taken care of all of the enemy within the perimeter. Secondary growth was thick in the area, and the Japanese were unnoticed until they were about 35 yards of their task force command post. Once the group was sighted, a considerable amount of fire was placed on it. The Japanese lay concealed in the undergrowth, and a single sniper pecked away with his rifle in the direction of the CP. Not knowing the size of the party, Major Chattamonte set out with four men to get the sniper. The task force commander and his executive officer directed the movement of the group either right or left according to the movements in the underbrush, and the soldiers and Major Chattamonte opened up whenever they detected any movements. As Major Chattamonte and his party finally entered the area on which they had been firing, they heard a click followed by grenade explosions. Three of the Japanese had committed suicide. Another rolled over on his back and used his sword to commit Hadakiri. Fifteen dead officers and sergeants were counted, including Captain Baba. Thus the attackers were kept beyond the perimeter until nightfall, when the attack finally stopped. On March the 2nd, after clearing Jemadalai Point, by 10.45 a.m., six LSTs landed the 1st Squadron 5th Cavalry plus artillery and Seabees. While the troops landed, Captain Emile Deschenaux, and I'm going to be very uh, honest, I have no idea how Americans would pronounce that French last name, so I'm just going to have to go with the French way. Like I've said before, there doesn't seem to be a rhyme or reason to how Americans pronounce French last names. For example, a common French last name, Chenault, the Americans pronounce it uh, Chenault for the famous commander. But anyways, Deschenaux's destroyers bombarded Highway Island and Hyane Harbor. With reinforcements in hand, General Chase launched a new attack to extend his perimeter. At 2.15, B-25s, P-38s, and P-47s bombed and strafed the area. The western half of the airfield and the dispersal area was soft enough for the ground attack, and the Skidway and Hyane Coast beyond were also targets. Bombs were also dropped on the strip of land forming the northern arm of the harbor. After this, at 3, the two cavalry squadrons advanced across the airstrip, rapidly taking the entire airdrome against light opposition. They finally dug in along a new perimeter. To block possible enemy landings from across Hyane Harbor, two anti-aircraft batteries and E Company of the 592nd Boat and Shore Regiment defended the shore. Seabees formed an inner defensive line to the west and the northwest of the brigade. Six rough trenches were dug out by a bulldozer and ten men stationed in each. The remainder of the 40th Construction Battalion elements remained in their trench and right flank, which was now a secondary line behind the troopers. The critical north and northwest sectors were the 2nd Squadron's responsibility. They prepared their positions with careful attention to interlocking bands and machine gun fire, while the 1st Squadron dug in on their left flank. The first night in the enlarged beachhead passed by without any crisis. An attack came at 9pm, but it was not as severe as expected. The chief enemy effort was to push machine gun parties and infiltration groups through the 2nd Squadron sector, and in particular, through that held by Troop G. Communication lines were cut, radio equipment was slightly damaged, and a few Japanese penetrated as far as the field artillery positions. The artillery, prepared for interdiction fire, was not called on. The following morning, a systematic search for enemy troops within the position was started, and all the Japanese within the perimeter were killed while the CBs began work on the airstrip. At the same time, Kruger arranged with Barbie to expedite the movement of the rest of the cavalry division. The 2nd Squadron 7th Cavalry Regiment was to arrive on March the 4th. The remaining units of the 1st Brigade would arrive by March the 6th, and the 2nd Brigade was to arrive by March the 9th. At this point, Colonel Izaki realized the situation was quite desperate. His 1st Baton 229th Regiment were being obliterated. He 
moved his HQ from Papatalai to Papatalai Mission, and he began concentrating his garrison units at Lorengao. He also ordered the 2nd Battalion 1st Independent Regiment at Salami to perform an assault from the north, coordinating with the 229th Regiment. Their advance was slowed by constant naval and land artillery fire, but they got into position by the night of March the 3rd. Now, the Americans expected this attack. Prior to this, an enemy officer patrol had attempted to land on the shore of Hayane Harbor. The platoon leader of the shore company guarding the beach there allowed the boat to come to land. Then they opened fire, killing all the members of the patrol. Among the valuable documents discovered on the bodies was one that gave information about the strong attack that would be launched that night. With this knowledge in hand, the Americans fortified their frontline defenses. Since infiltration was still the greatest danger from a small force holding a large perimeter in jungle and darkness, the frontline positions were of prime importance. To offer as little space as possible for the infiltration, each troop in the line would use all three of its rifle platoons. Automatic weapons covering frontline positions were basic in fire plans. Each of these weapons in turn was protected by two, three, or even four dugouts on both flanks and rear-manned by two or three riflemen. The approaches to these positions were strewn with mines, trip signals were made using empty C-ration cans with lumps of coral inside for clappers. They're hung on lengths of wire strung, taut 10 inches off the ground. In organizing defenses, good use was made of Japanese revetments, built to protect their airplanes in the dispersal bays of the airstrip. These revetments were steep banks of earth reaching some 15 feet high. Usually a large one was at the end of the bay with two smaller embankments flanking it to form a pattern which, from the air, looked like cleats on the sole of a football shoe. Near the crest of some of these mounds on the reverse slopes, cavalrymen dug their foxholes. Two 30 caliber water-cooled machine guns were then placed on the flat ground alongside the bunker and mounted to fire across the front of the position. All the 81mm motors were massed near the center of the perimeter, while all the 60mm motors were moved close to the front line. The water-cooled 50 caliber machine guns of the anti-aircraft units were returned to their units except for those on the northern end of the airstrip. This side of the perimeter faced the skidway, whence the chief attack was expected. Patrols had met the greatest opposition when working in this direction and towards Porlaka. Enemy barges and troop concentrations had also been sighted on the northwestern shore of Hyannay Harbor. Nearby naval units would also coordinate by firing upon Japanese concentrations when they were discovered. At 9 p.m., the Japanese began their attack as a single Japanese bomber dropped eight bombs. As soon as the plane had departed, two yellow flares went up from the vicinity of Podaka, and a tracer, apparently 20 millimeters, was fired almost vertically from a position in front of Troop B's sector to the southwest. Almost immediately, an attack supported by motor fire was launched there as well as against the position held by Troop F and G to the northwest. The attack against the 1st Squadron on the southwest was relatively light, the enemy's strength here being estimated later as two reinforced platoons. Since the 1st Squadron sector was covered by a heavy growth of secondary jungle forest, infiltration was quite dangerous. The sighted positions of automatic weapons were of little value in the darkness, so the cavalrymen picked up their guns and fired them from the hip. The Japanese moved automatic weapons forward apparently with no other plan of action, then to set them up open in front of the lines, depending on darkness to conceal their positions. The excited talking of the crews gave away their positions, and it became easy targets for the defending riflemen. The attackers were blanketed with motor fire accurately, placed 20 to 50 yards in front of the perimeter. Nevertheless, many of the enemy did manage to infiltrate, 
some going as far south to the end of the airstrip, where they hid in heavy brush or climbed up trees to begin sniper operations at dawn. Because of the relative weakness of the attacking force, there was never any real danger that the first squadron's positions would be overrun. The attack upon the second squadron's position on the northwest was a greater threat, with over a battalion, as later estimated, advancing on the sector from the direction of Poraaka and the skidway against the whole of Troop G's position and on the right flank of Troop F. It seemed the enemy's intention was to drive the troops from their perimeter and occupy the north end of the airstrip. The attacks against the sector held by troops E and F were limited to infiltrations towards motor positions and command posts. The rear installations were covered by enemy motor fire and machine gun fire while Japanese with grenades closed in and overran the positions. The CBs holding their secondary defensive line behind the cavalry on the north side of the perimeter also felt the effects of the furious attacks. Cavalrymen whose guns were knocked out or who had run out of ammunition came rushing back to the CBs' trenches. When a weak place developed towards the left side of the CB's position, their extra ammunition was at the other end of their line. First, the men passed the ammunition to the front line by throwing the boxes from hole to hole. But when that seemed too slow, they got out of their holes and they just ran with it. The Japanese advanced relentlessly, talking and singing, though damaged and hampered by anti-personal mines and booby traps until they were cut down by fierce machine gun fire of the cavalrymen. Yet more and more kept coming behind them, marching over the bodies of the dead. The Americans hunkered down in their holes and fired upon anything that moved, continuing to inflict heavy casualties. The Japanese attempted a number of tricks and were occasionally successful. Somehow they had learned the names of certain platoon leaders. On one occasion, a Japanese yelled, Retreat, Thorn! The whole regiment's falling back to another line. This caused the motor platoon commanded by 1st Lieutenant William D. Thorne to leave their positions. Not only did the platoon suffer three casualties, but they were unable to direct their motor fire during the rest of the night. Another trick was to have individuals move about in front of the perimeter to draw the fire of the machine guns. Then two or three snipers would fire tracers at any weapon that disclosed itself, enabling a motor to open up a position. Several cases of wiretapping of the 90mm anti-aircraft battery took place between 10.30 and midnight, the wiretapper claiming to be, on one occasion, a certain officer commanding a platoon, and another, sergeant. This individual reported in each case disruption of the plans and the success of the anime. Since his voice was not recognized, his messages were not heeded, however. A later message, although believed to be false, made the 211th Coastal Artillery Battalion change its CP. At 11.30, a single enemy plane with landing lights on made several runs at low altitude dropping flares. In spite of orders to hold fire, the anti-aircraft battery opened up on the plane, driving it north, where it dropped bombs on Japanese positions. Japanese using knives and grenades managed to get themselves into Troop G's defenses. A ferocious counterattack by the cavalrymen would shortly regain the positions just in time to face another strong frontal attack, in which more Japanese were cut down in front of the 2nd Squadron. By daylight, the infantry attacks were finally over, with the cavalrymen counting over 750 dead Japanese as they established a new outpost line on March the 4th. The Americans had suffered 61 deaths and 244 wounded. Nine of the dead and 38 of the wounded were Seabees. That same day was met by another heavy bombardment of Japanese positions, then the 2nd Squadron 7th Cavalry landed against slain enemy resistance. The defensive perimeter was strengthened again, and the damage of the previous night was repaired. 
Colonel Azaki now believed that his troops had successfully pierced the American first line of defense, and thus he ordered a continuation of the attack that very night. But upon learning the truth and how many casualties he had suffered, he decided to cancel the attack and he ordered a general withdrawal towards Lorengau, leaving some units to hold Papatalai and to delay the American advance. 600 men had been lost in the Skidway area in the attacks upon the perimeter. The remaining 200, with an additional 100 stragglers from other disorganized units, were ordered to retreat through Salemi Beach and across the Papatalai Harbor to the Papatalai Mission. Natives on Mokarang Peninsula later told the Angai party that the Japanese retreat developed into a rout. It seemed that they were panic-stricken. Some did not even take paddles for their native canoes, canoes that they appropriated for their escape to the Paptali mission. Not more than 80 Japanese, frantic from fear and exhaustion, arrived at the mission to bolster the force already there. By the 5th, General Swift arrived to the secured beachhead in the Admiralties and with the arrival of the 12th Cavalry Regiment the following day. He was now ready to launch an offensive west towards Seedler Harbor, the Lorengau Aerodrome, and north against Salami Plantation. That same day, to clear the way for the 2nd Brigade's landing at Red Beach, General Swift ordered the 2nd Squadron, 7th Cavalry, to move across the skidway to a point about 500 yards north. Despite thorough artillery support, the advance did not go very smoothly, with the Japanese immediately launching a strong attack from both Porlaka and the native skidway. Luckily, the few Japanese who penetrated the position were killed, around 25 of them, and the attack was broken up by motor and artillery fire. At 4.30, the squadron finally began their offensive, moving with difficulty across a mined area and only gaining about 500 yards by nightfall. The next morning, the squadron advanced with the 12th Cavalry soon joining them. Despite the occasional pillboxes and a congested trail, the cavalrymen made ample progress towards the beaches of Seedler Harbor, and they closed in Salami by 4.30. To further secure the harbor, General Swift planned to clear the enemy presence at the Mokarang Peninsula, Paptali Mission, and Lobram Point. That day, the 5th Cavalry had already begun work of clearing the southern shores of Seedler Harbor by pushing patrols west to the airstrip. Finding much more enemy corpses than opposition, Troop F would be able to establish a bridgehead at Porlaka. At 12 on the 7th, after an artillery bombardment, a reconnaissance patrol consisting of 40 volunteers from Troop B, led by Captain William C. Cornelius, advanced across the Lemon Troll Creek and successfully landed on Papatalai against an estimated 50 Japanese defenders. Captain Cornelius, leading the first wave, was reported to have single-handedly killed four of the enemy with rifle fire and grenades while operating 50 yards in advance of the troops. Yet he was severely wounded and he would die the next day. For his courage and leadership, he was awarded the Distinguished Service Cross. The Japanese quickly withdrew. Simultaneously, after a heavy air and artillery bombardment, the 2nd Squadron 12th Cavalry departed Salami and advanced across Seedler Harbor to land at Papatalai Mission, meeting heavy resistance. By nightfall, Troop G had secured a beachhead, though it would have to break up three determined counterattacks during the night. This ultimately forced the Japanese to pull out from their beach defenses at the Paptali mission and to retreat towards Lorengau, allowing the cavalrymen to secure the beachhead the following morning. By 12 o'clock on the 8th, supplies for the 2nd Squadron, 7th Cavalry's attack against the Lobrum Plantation had also begun arriving at Red Beach, over a difficult road from Mamut. Equipping the 12th Cavalry and the 2nd Squadron, 7th Cavalry at Salami with enough supplies to carry on their overwater attacks was rather difficult and a hazardous operation. 
The single road from Mamut to Salami was impassable for most vehicles during the days when the supplies were most urgently needed. Buffaloes managed to get through by going over water part of the way, but the rest of the essential supplies had to be dropped from airplanes or sent in LCMs from Mamut around the Mokarang Peninsula. The sending of LCMs into Sealer Harbor was an operation which was possible only after continued naval efforts from D-Day on. Magnetic mines dropped by American planes in May of 1943 were presumably still in the harbor and they had to be removed. To make entry into the harbor safer for the forces, destroyers also had to neutralize the Japanese harbor defense guns, which had proved pretty effective. The destroyers and minesweepers worked to accomplish these missions, but even by the 7th of March, when six LCMs loaded with supplies were to make their way to the point, it was not certain the enemy resistance on the islands guarding the harbor had been completely neutralized. LCMs then successfully landed Troop E, F, and G on Lombrum two hours later against sporadic fire. The Americans extended their perimeter by 5 o'clock, successfully completing the task of securing Seedler Harbor, while other units of the 12th Cavalry secured the Mokarang Peninsula to cover the northern flank of the 2nd Brigade's landing. On the 9th, the 2nd Brigade successfully landed Salami, while destroyers pounded the main Japanese positions at Lorengao. This effectively ended the first phase of Operation Brewer. The Americans had suffered a total of 116 deaths, with 434 wounded during their occupation of Los Negros, while counting 1,288 dead Japanese by the end of March the 8th. Their next objective would be the Lorengau Airdrome on Manus Island, but that is going to be it for the Admiralties today, as we need to quickly head over to New Britain. Back over on New Britain, General Rupertus was planning to invade the Willamas Peninsula in order to cut off the Japanese retreat line and to take the Talassia Airdrome. He assigned the 5th Marines under Colonel Oliver Smith for the task. They were going to land at a point about midway on the western coast of the Willamas Peninsula, north of Volapai, labeled Beach Red. The chosen zone of operations was about as good as the Marines could have found it. It presented them with a short, comparatively flat route to their objective, which might make possible utilization of tanks. There was a dirt track approximately four miles long that connected Beach Red with Bidukara, and although it was not designed for motor transport, the Marines could only hope. Beach Red contained about as much depth as Beach's Yellow 1 and Yellow 2 in the Gloucester landings, but was more confined on its flanks. There was 350 yards of sand nestled between a cliff on the right and a swamp on the left. The cliff constituted the northwestern slope of Little Mount Wari, a mass rising 1,360 feet above the beach and enfolding the native villages of Laipo, and to the south, Volupai on the west. Overlooking this smaller mountain from the south was Big Mount Wari, higher by 300 feet and with more encompassing base. Included on its ridgeline was Mount Schluther on the peninsula's eastern coast, which dominated Bidokara, Talassia, and the Waru villages from an altitude of 1,130 feet. The Volupai plantation was 400 yards inland from Beach Red, containing a collection of small buildings and groves of coconut palms and cacao trees. There was also the Volupai track linking Beach Red with Bidokara, skirting the northern bases of several mountains. The country, except for the plantations and villages, was typical of New Britain, overgrown jungle and underbrush. Sea and air control in the New Britain area had passed so completely into Allied hands by this point, it was decided to transport the assault forces from Iboki to Vulupai in a convoy of 38 LCMs, 17 LCVPs, and 5 LSTs with just 5 PT boats as escort. 
Furthermore, on March the 3rd, an amphibious patrol landed on Cape Bastian and managed to contact friendly natives in order to learn where the enemy had a weak presence in the area. This was the reinforced 7th Company 54th Regiment, which had been sent by General Sakai to defend Talassia, with the bulk of the Matsuda and Komori detachments retreating towards Malalia. General Sakai was planning to engage the enemy in a decisive battle with the entire force of the 17th Division. But on February the 23rd, General Imamura had ordered him to withdraw towards Rabaul. Thus, General Sakai assigned the 17th Provisional Battalion to secure Toru, the 2nd Battalion 53rd Regiment to hold Ulamona, the 39th Anti-Aircraft Battalion to remain at Malalia, the 17th Engineer Regiment to facilitate the crossing of the Kapula River, and the 17th Transport Regiment to establish supply depots at Ubai, Butolo, and Sulu. He also ordered the bulk of the 54th Regiment to leave some naval units at Gazmata and to begin retreating towards Amio and then Umbai, where the barges were finally able to evacuate the detachment. Now to finish off this episode, I just want to talk a little bit about some developments on Bougainville. General Grizzle's 14th Corps had just taken over the protection of the Cape Torquina base. As such, nearly 62,000 men were stationed in the area. Defenses were consolidated with an impressive artillery complement under Brigadier General Leo Kriber. During this period of consolidation, the most important actions were to establish an important Fijian outpost on Ibu village. One of the most effective units operating under the Corps command was the 1st Battalion of the Fiji Infantry Regiment. This battalion, consisting of 777 enlisted men and 34 officers, were commanded by Lieutenant Colonel J.B.K. Taylor of the New Zealand Army, and they arrived at Bougainville in late December. Taylor had become wounded in the first night ashore, and he was replaced as commander by Major Gregory Upton, who was in charge of the battalion during its long-range patrols in late December and January. The Fijian troops were well-trained, proud of their uniforms and their ability to march. And according to reports, they loved to sing a wide variety of Fijian songs, as well as the more modern American tunes. Immediately after their arrival, plans were underway to use their unique abilities as jungle fighters to establish a combat outpost far to the east of the mountain range most of which was controlled by the Japanese. They managed to gain valuable information on Japanese movements before withdrawing in late February, and a successful expansion of the perimeter east of the mouth of the Torokina River was made. But the first real test of the Corps in Bougainville was approaching. Under immense pressure from his superiors, General Hayakutake had been preparing to launch a major counterattack, codenamed Operation T.A., he had assembled over 15,000 men from his total strength of nearly 40,000 to take part in this operation. General Kanda and the 6th Divisional Commander was given command of the force, and his mission was quite simple. Three task forces, named after their commanders, the Iwasi unit of Major General Iwasi Shun, consisting of the 23rd Infantry Regiment, the 2nd Battalion of the 13th Regiment, attached to some engineering troops and two batteries of light field artillery and a motor battalion in all, approximating 4,150 men. The second unit was the Magata unit, commanded by Colonel Magata Hisashi, consisting mostly of the 45th Infantry Regiment, some artillery and motor battalions, and some engineers, approximating about 4,300 men. And the third and smallest unit was the Muda unit, commanded by Colonel Muda Torehore, consisting of the 1st and 3rd battalions of the 13th Regiment, and an engineering company, a total of 1,350 men. These three units would attack strong points in the American perimeter. 
Thus, the Iwasa unit was to strike towards Hill 700 on the right flank of the 37th Division line, and then to drive directly towards the two Piva airfields. Hayakutake planned to capture this by March the 10th. The Magata unit was to take some low ground west of Hill 700, and then to drive south to capture the Torakina airstrip by March the 17th. The Muda unit was to seize Hills 260 and 309 in the Americal sector, and then to capture the strategically important Hill 608 by March the 10th. Next time we talk about Bougainville, it's going to see some major action. I would like to take this time to remind all of you that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube. Please go subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And hey, don't forget about our sister podcast over at the Age of Conquest, the Fall and Rise of China podcast, written and narrated by me. And if after all that, you are still hungry for some more history, why don't you check out my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel, over at YouTube. Over there, I've just released part three of my Kanji Ishiwata series, titled The China War. That series used to be an exclusive on my Patreon account, which can be found at www.patreon.com slash the Pacific War Channel. And over there, you can still find more than 14 plus exclusive Patreon podcasts. So please, if you want to support me, go check it out. Despite the Admiralty Islands certainly holding significant enemy units, General MacArthur went ahead anyways with his reconnaissance in force, and he turned it into a full-blown invasion. Yet again, MacArthur proved he was willing to do whatever necessary to make sure the drive of the Pacific campaign pointed directly in the direction of the Philippines.